What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Chapter 6 of The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 6 Quote, Those strains that once did sweet in Zion glide, he wells a portion with judicious care. And let us worship God, he says, with solemn air. Unquote. Burns Hayward and his female companions witnessed this mysterious movement with secret uneasiness, for though the conduct of the white man had hitherto been above reproach, his rude equipments, blunt address, and strong antipathies, together with the character of his silent associates, were all causes for exciting distrust in minds that had been so recently alarmed by Indian treachery. The stranger alone disregarded the passing incidents. He seated himself on a projection of the rocks, whence he gave no other signs of consciousness than by the struggles of his spirit, as manifested in the frequent and heavy sighs. Smothered voices were next heard, as though men called to each other in the bowels of the earth, when a sudden light flashed upon those without and laid bare the much-prized secret of the place. At the further extremity of a narrow, deep cavern in the rock, whose length appeared much extended by the perspective and the nature of the light by which it was seen, was seated the scout, holding a blazing knot of pine. The strong glare of the fire fell full upon his sturdy, weather-beaten countenance and forest attire, lending an air of romantic wildness to the aspect of an individual who, seen by the sober light of day, would have exhibited the peculiarities of a man remarkable for the strangeness of his dress, the iron-like inflexibility of his frame, and the singular compound of quick, vigilant sagacity and of exquisite simplicity that by turns usurped the possession of his muscular features. At a little distance in advance stood Uncas, his whole person thrown powerfully into view. The travelers anxiously regarded the upright, flexible figure of the young Mohican, graceful and unrestrained in the attitudes and movements of nature. Though his person was more than usually screened by a green and fringed hunting shirt like that of the white man, there was no concealment of his dark, glancing, fearless eye, alike terrible and calm, the bold outline of his high, haughty features, pure in their native red, or to the dignified elevation of his receding forehead, together with all the finest proportions of a noble head, bared to the generous scalping tuft. It was the first opportunity possessed by Duncan and his companions to view the marked lineaments of either of their Indian attendants, and each individual of the party felt relieved from a burden of doubt, as the proud and determined, the wild expression of the features of the young warrior forced itself on their notice. 
they felt it might be a being partially benighted in the veil of ignorance, but it could not be one who would willingly devote his rich natural gifts to the purpose of wanton treachery. The ingenuous Alice gazed at his free air and proud carriage, as she would have looked upon some precious relic of the Grecian chisel to which life had been imparted by the invention of a miracle, while Hayward, though accustomed to see the perfection of form which abounds among the uncorrupted natives, openly expressed his admiration at such an unblemished specimen of the noblest proportions of man. "'I could sleep in peace,' whispered Alice in reply, "'with such a fearless and generous-looking youth for my sentinel. "'Surely, Duncan, those cruel murders, "'those terrific scenes of torture, of which we read and hear so much, "'are never acted in the presence of such as he.' This is certainly a rare and brilliant instance of those natural qualities in which these peculiar people are said to excel, he answered. I agree with you, Alice, in thinking that such a front and eye were formed rather to intimidate than to deceive. But let us not practice a deception upon ourselves by expecting any other exhibition of what we esteem virtue than according to the fashion of the savage. As bright examples of great qualities are but too uncommon among Christians, so they are singular and solitary with Indians. Though for the honor of our common nature, neither are incapable of producing them. Let us then hope that this Mohican may not disappoint our wishes, but prove what his looks assert him to be, a brave and constant friend. Now Major Hayward speaks as Major Hayward should, said Cora, who that looks at this creature of nature remembers the shade of his skin? A short and apparently an embarrassed silence succeeded this remark, which was interrupted by the scout calling to them aloud to enter. This fire begins to show too bright a flame, he continued, as they complied, and might light the Mingos to our undoing. Uncas, drop the blanket and show the knaves its dark side. This is not such a supper as a major of the Royal Americans has right to expect, but I've known stout detachment of the corps glad to eat their venison raw, and without a relish, too. Footnote. In vulgar parlance, the condiments of a repast are called by the American a relish, substituting the thing for its effect. These provincial terms are frequently put in the mouths of the speakers according to their several conditions in life. Most of them are of local use, and others quite peculiar to the particular class of men to which the character belongs. In the present instance, the scout uses the word with immediate reference to the salt, with which his own party was so fortunate as to be provided. End footnote. Here, you see, we have plenty of salt, and can make a quick broil. There's fresh sassy frass boughs for the ladies to sit on, which may not be as proud as their my hog guinea chairs, but which sends up a sweeter flavor than the skin of any hog can do, be it of guinea or be it of any other land. Come, friend, don't be mournful for the colt. Twas an innocent thing, and had not seen much hardship. Its death will save the creature. Many a sore back and weary foot. Uncas 
did as the other had directed, and when the voice of Hawkeye ceased, the roar of the cataract sounded like the rumbling of distant thunder. "'Are we quite safe in this cavern?' demanded Hayward. "'Is there no danger of surprise? A single-armed man at its entrance would hold us at his mercy.' A spectral-looking figure stalked out of the darkness behind the scout, and seizing a blazing brand, held it toward the further extremity of their place of retreat. Alice uttered a faint shriek, and even Cora rose to her feet as this appalling object moved into the light. But a single word from Hayward calmed them, with the assurance it was only their attendant, Chingachgook, who, lifting another blanket, discovered that the cavern had two outlets. Then, holding the brand, he crossed a deep, narrow chasm in the rocks, which ran at right angles with the passage they were in, but, which unlike that, was open to the heavens, and entered another cave, answering to the description of the first in every essential particular. Such old foxes as Chingachgook and myself are not often caught in a barrow with one hole, said Hawkeye, laughing. You can easily see the cunning of the place. The rock is black limestone, which everyone knows is soft. It makes no uncomfortable pillow where brush and pine wood is scarce. Well, the fall was once a few hundred yards below us, and I dare to say was in its time as regular and as handsome a sheet of water as any along the Hudson. But old age is a great injury to good looks, as these sweet young ladies have yet to learn. The place is sadly changed. These rocks are full of cracks, and in some places they are softer than at othersome, and the water has worked out deep hollows for itself until it has fallen back, I some hundred feet, breaking here and wearing there, until the falls have neither shape nor consistency. "'In what part of them are we?' asked Hayward. "'Why, we are nigh the spot that Providence first placed them at, but where it seems they were too rebellious to stay. The rock proved softer on each side of us, and so they left the center of the river bare and dry, first working out these two little holes for us to hide in. We are on an island? Aye, there are falls on two sides of us, and the river above and below. If you had daylight, it would be worth the trouble to step on the height of this rock, and look at the perversity of the water. It falls by no rule at all. Sometimes it leaps, sometimes it tumbles. There it skips, here it shoots. In one place tis white as snow, and in another tis green as grass. Hereabouts it pitches into deep hollows that rumble and crush the earth, and thereaways it ripples and sings like a brook, fashioning whirlpools and gullies in the old stone as if twas no harder than trodden clay. The whole design of the river seems disconcerted. First it runs smoothly, as if meaning to go down the descent as things were ordered. Then it angles about and faces the shores, nor... Are there places wanting where it looks backward, as if unwilling to leave the wilderness to mingle with the salt? Aye, lady, the fine cobweb-looking cloth you wear at your throat is coarse and like a fish-net. To the little spots I can show you where the river fabricates all sorts of images, as if having broke loose from order, it would try its hand at everything. And yet, what does it amount to? After the water has been suffered so to have its will for a time, like a headstrong man, 
It is gathered together by the hand that made it, and a few rods below you may see it all, flowing on steadily toward the sea, as was foreordained from the first foundation of the earth. While his auditors received a cheering assurance of the security of their place of concealment from this untutored description of Glen's, they were much inclined to judge differently from Hawkeye of its wild beauties. Footnote. Glen's Falls are on the Hudson, some forty or fifty miles above the head of tide, or that place where the river becomes navigable for sloops. The description of this picturesque and remarkable little cataract, as given by the scout, is sufficiently correct, though the application of the water to uses in civilized life has materially injured its beauties. The rocky island and the two caverns are known to every traveler, since the former sustains the pier of a bridge, which is now thrown across the river immediately above the fall. In explanation of the taste of Hawkeye, it should be remembered that men always prize that most, which is least enjoyed. Thus, in a new country, the woods and other objects, which in an old country would be maintained at great cost, are got rid of, simply with a view of improving, as it is called. End footnote. They were not in a situation to suffer their thoughts to dwell on the charms of natural objects and, as the scout had not found it necessary to cease his culinary labors while he spoke, unless to point out with a broken fork the direction of some particularly obnoxious point in the rebellious stream, they now suffered their attention to be drawn to the necessary though more vulgar consideration of their supper. The repast, which was greatly aided by the addition of a few delicacies that Hayward had the precaution to bring with him when they left their horses, was exceedingly refreshing to the weary party. Uncas acted as attendant to the females, performing all the little offices within his power, with a mixture of dignity and anxious grace, that served to amuse Hayward, who well knew that it was an utter innovation on the Indian customs, which forbid their warriors to descend to any menial employment, especially in favor of their women. As the rites of hospitality were, however, considered sacred among them, this little departure from the dignity of manhood excited no audible comment. Had there been one sufficiently disengaged to become a close observer, he might have fancied that the services of the young chief were not entirely impartial, that, while he tendered to Alice the gourd of sweet water, and the venison in a trencher, neatly carved from the knot of a pepperidge, with sufficient courtesy, in performing the same offices to her sister, his dark eye lingered on her rich, speaking countenance. Once or twice he was compelled to speak, to command her attention of those he served. In such cases he made use of English, broken and imperfect, but sufficiently intelligible, and which he rendered so mild and musical by his deep guttural voice that it never failed to cause both ladies to look up in admiration and astonishment. In the course of these civilities a few sentences were exchanged that served to establish the appearance of an amicable intercourse between the parties. In the meanwhile the gravity of Chingachgook remained immovable. He had seated himself more within the circle of light, where the frequent uneasy glances of his guest were better enabled to separate the natural expression of his face from the artificial terrors of the war-paint. 
they found a strong resemblance between father and son, with the difference that might be expected from age and hardships. The fierceness of his countenance now seemed to slumber, and in its place was to be seen the quiet, vacant composure which distinguishes an Indian warrior when his faculties are not required for any of the greater purposes of his existence. It was, however, easy to be seen, by the occasional gleams that shot across his swarthy visage, that it was only necessary to arouse his passions, in order to give full effect to the terrific device which he had adopted to intimidate his enemies. On the other hand, the quick roving eye of the scout seldom rested. He ate and drank with an appetite that no sense of danger could disturb but his vigilance seemed never to desert him. Twenty times the gourd of the venison was suspended before his lips, while his head was turned aside, as though he listened to some distant and distrusted sounds. A movement that never failed to recall his guest from regarding the novelties of their situation to a recollection of the alarming reasons that had driven them to seek it. As these frequent pauses were never followed by any remark, the momentary uneasiness they created quickly passed away, and for a time was forgotten. "'Come, friend,' said Hawkeye, drawing out a keg from beneath a cover of leaves toward the close of the repast, and addressing the stranger who sat at his elbow, doing great justice to his culinary skill. "'Try a little spruce. Twill wash away all thoughts of the colt, and quicken the life in your bosom. I drink to our better friendship.' hoping that a little horse-flesh may leave no heart-burnings atween us. How do you name yourself? Gamut. David Gamut, returned the singing master, preparing to wash down his sorrows in a powerful draught of the woodsman's high-flavored and well-laced compound. A very good name, and I dare say, handed down from honest forefathers. I am an admirator of names, though the Christian fashions fall far below savage customs in this particular. The biggest coward I ever knew was called Lion, and his wife Patience would scold you out of hearing in less time than a hunted deer would run a rod. With an Indian, tis a matter of conscience what he calls himself. He generally is, not the Chingachcook, which signifies big sarpent, is really a snake, big or little, but that he understands the windings and turnings of human nature, and is silent and strikes his enemies when they least expect him. What may be your calling? I am an unworthy instructor in the art of psalmody. Anan, I teach singing to the youths of the Connecticut levy. You might be better employed. The young hounds go laughing and singing too much already through the woods, when they ought not to breathe louder than the fox in his cover. Can you use the smooth-bore, or handle the rifle? Praise be to God, I have never had occasion to meddle with murderous implements. Perhaps you understand the compass, and lay down the watercourses and mountains of the wilderness on paper, in order that they who follow may find places by their given names? I practice no such employment. You have a pair of legs that might make a long path seem short. You journey sometimes, I fancy, with tidings for the general? Never. I follow no other than my own high vocation, 
which is instruction in sacred music. "'Tis a strange calling,' muttered Hawkeye, with an inward laugh, "'to go through life like a catbird, mocking all the ups and downs that may happen to come out of other men's throats. Well, friend, I suppose it is your gift, and mustn't be denied any more than if twas shooting or some other better inclination. Let us hear what you can do in that way. Twill be a friendly manner of saying good-night, for tis time that these ladies should be getting strength for a hard and long push in the pride of the morning, afore the maquas are stirring. With joyful pleasure do I consent, said David, adjusting his iron-rimmed spectacles, and producing his beloved little volume, which he immediately tendered to Alice. What can be more fitting and consolatory than to offer up evening praise, after a day of such exceeding jeopardy? Alice smiled, but regarding Hayward, she blushed and hesitated. Indulge yourself, he whispered. Ought not the suggestion of the worthy namesake of the psalmist to have its weight at such a moment? Encouraged by his opinion, Alice did what her pious inclinations and her keen relish for gentle sounds had before so strongly urged. The book was opened at a hymn not ill-adapted to their situation, and in which the poet, no longer goaded by his desire to expel the inspired king of Israel, had discovered some chastened and respectable powers. Korah betrayed a disposition to support her sister, and the sacred song proceeded, after the indispensable preliminaries of the pitch-pipe, and the tune had been duly attended by the methodical David. The air was solemn and slow. At times it rose to the fullest compass of the rich voices of the females, who hung over their little book in holy excitement, and again it sank so low that the rushing of the waters ran through their melody like a hollow accompaniment. The natural taste and true ear of David governed and modified the sounds to suit the confined cavern every crevice and cranny of which was filled with the thrilling notes of their flexible voices. The Indians riveted their eyes on the rocks, and listened with an attention that seemed to turn them into stone. But the scout, who had placed his chin in his hand with an expression of cold indifference, gradually suffered his rigid features to relax, until, as verse succeeded verse, he felt his iron nature subdued, while his recollection was carried back to boyhood, when his ears had been accustomed to listen to similar sounds of praise in the settlements of the colony. His roving eyes began to moisten, and before the hymn was ended, scalding tears rolled out of fountains that had long seemed dry, and followed each other down those cheeks that had oftener felt the storms of heaven than any testimonials of weakness. The singers were dwelling on one of those low, dying chords, which the ear devours with such greedy rapture, as if conscious that it was about to lose them, when a cry that seemed neither human nor earthly rose in the outward air, penetrating not only the recesses of the cavern, but to the inmost hearts of all who heard it. It was followed by a stillness, apparently as deep as if the waters had been checked in their furious progress at such a horrid and unusual interruption. "'What is it?' murmured Alice, after a few moments of terrible suspense. "'What is it?' repeated Hayward aloud. 
Neither Hawkeye nor the Indians made any reply. They listened, as if expecting the sound would be repeated, with a manner that expressed their own astonishment. At length they spoke together earnestly in the Delaware language. When, Uncas, passing by the inner and most concealed aperture, cautiously left the cavern. When he had gone, the scout first spoke in English. What it is or what it is not, none here can tell. Though two of us have ranged the wood for more than thirty years, I did believe there was no cry that Indian or beast could make that my ears had not heard. But this has proved that I was only a vain and conceited mortal. Was it not, then, the shout warriors make when they wish to intimidate their enemies? asked Cora, who stood drawing her veil about her person, with a calmness to which her agitated sister was a stranger. No, no, this was bad and shocking, and had a short of unhuman sound. But when you once hear the war-hoop, you will never mistake it for anything else. Well, Uncas, speaking in the Delaware to the young chief as he re-entered, what see you? Do our lights shine through the blankets? The answer was short, and apparently decided, being given in the same tongue. There is nothing to be seen without, continued Hawkeye, shaking his head in discontent and our hiding-place is still in darkness. Pass into the other cave, you that need it, and seek for sleep. We must be afoot long before the sun, and make the most of our time to get to Edward while the Mingos are still taking their morning nap. Cora set the example of compliance, with a steadiness that taught the more timid Alice the necessity of obedience. Before leaving the place, however, she whispered a request to Duncan that he would follow, Uncas raised the blanket for the passage, and as the sisters turned to thank him for his act of attention, they saw the scout seated again before the dying embers, with his face resting on his hands, in a manner which showed how deeply he brooded on the unaccountable interruption which had broken their evening devotions. Hayward took with him a blazing knot, which threw a dim light through the narrow vista of their new apartment. Placing it in a favorable position, he joined the females, who now found themselves alone with him for the first time since they had left the friendly ramparts of Fort Edward. "'Leave us not, Duncan,' said Alice. "'We cannot sleep in such a place as this, with that horrid cry still ringing in our ears.' First, let us examine into the security of our fortress,' he answered. "'And then we will speak of rest.' He approached the further end of the cavern, to an outlet which, like the others, was concealed by blankets and, removing the thick screen, breathed the fresh and reviving air from the cataract. One arm of the river flowed through a deep, narrow ravine, which its current had worn in the soft rock directly beneath his feet, forming an effectual defense, as he believed, against any danger from that quarter. The water, a few rods above them, plunging, glancing, and sweeping along in its most violent and broken manner. "'Nature has made an impenetrable barrier on this side,' he continued, pointing down the perpendicular declivity into the dark current before he dropped the blanket. And as you know that good men and true are on guard in front, I see no reason why the advice of our honest host should be disregarded. I am certain Cora will join me in saying that sleep is necessary to you both. Cora may submit to the justice of your opinion, though she cannot put it in practice, returned the elder sister, who had placed herself by the side of Alice, on a couch of sassafras. There would be other causes to chase away sleep, 
though we had been spared the shock of this mysterious noise. Ask yourself, Hayward, can daughters forget the anxiety a father must endure, whose children lodge he knows not where or how in such a wilderness, and in the midst of so many perils? He is a soldier, and knows how to estimate the chances of the woods. He is a father, and cannot deny his nature. How kind has he ever been to all my follies! How tender and indulgent to all my wishes! sobbed Alice. We have been selfish, sister, in urging our visit at such hazard. I had been rash in pressing his consent in a moment of such embarrassment that I would have proved to him that however others might neglect him in his strait, his children, at least, were faithful. When he heard of your arrival at Edward, said Hayward kindly, there was a powerful struggle in his bosom between fear and love. Though the latter, heightened if possible, by so long a separation, quickly prevailed. It is the spirit of my noble-minded Cora that leads them, Duncan, he said, and I would not balk it. Would to God that he who holds the honor of our royal master in his guardianship would show but half her firmness. "'And did he not speak of me, Hayward?' demanded Alice with jealous affection. "'Surely he forgot not altogether his little Elsie.' "'That were impossible,' returned the young man. "'He called you by a thousand endearing epithets that I may not presume to use, but to the justice of which I can warmly testify. Once, indeed, he said, Duncan ceased speaking, for while his eyes were riveted on those of Alice, who had turned toward him with the eagerness of filial affection, to catch his words, the same strong, horrid cry as before filled the air and rendered him mute. A long, breathless silence succeeded, during which each looked at the others, in fearful expectation of hearing the sound repeated. At length, the blanket was slowly raised, and the scout stood in the aperture with a countenance whose firmness evidently began to give way before a mystery that seemed to threaten some danger, against which all his cunning and experience might prove to no avail. End of chapter 6 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the summer of 2007. Chapter 7 of The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 7 Quote they do not sleep. On yonder cliffs a grisly band. I see them sit. Unquote. Gray. T'would be neglecting a warning that is given for our good to lie hid any longer, said Hawkeye, when such sounds are raised in the forest. These gentle ones may keep close, but the Mohicans and I will watch upon the rock, where I suppose a major of the sixtieth would wish to keep us company. "'Is then our danger so pressing?' asked Cora. "'He who makes strange sounds and gives them out for man's information alone knows our danger. "'I should think myself wicked unto rebellion against his will, 
was I to burrow with such warnings in the air. Even the weak soul who passes his days in singing is stirred by the cry, and, as he says, is ready to go forth to the battle. If twere only a battle, it would be a thing understood by us all and easily managed. But I have heard that when such shrieks are atween heaven and earth, it betokens another sort of warfare. If all our reasons for fear, my friend, were confined to such as proceed from supernatural causes, we have but little occasion to be alarmed, continued the undisturbed Cora. Are you certain that our enemies have not invented some new and ingenious method to strike us with terror, that their conquest may become more easy? Lady, returned the scout solemnly, I have listened to all the sounds of the woods for thirty years, as a man will listen whose life and death depend on the quickness of his ears. There is no whine of the panther, no whistle of the catbird, nor any invention of the devilish mingos that can cheat me. I have heard the forest moan like mortal men in their affliction. Often and again have I listened to the wind playing its music in the branches of the girdled trees, and I have heard the lightning crackling in the air like the snapping of blazing brush as it spitted forth sparks and forked flames. But never have I thought that I heard more than the pleasure of him who sported with the things of his hand. But neither the Mohicans nor I, who am a white man without a cross, can explain the cry just heard. We therefore believe it a sign given for our good. It is extraordinary, said Hayward, taking his pistols from the place where he had laid them on entering. Be it a sign of peace, or a signal of war, it must be looked to. Lead the way, my friend. I follow. On issuing from their place of confinement, the whole party instantly experienced a grateful renovation of spirits by exchanging the pent air of the hiding-place for the cool and invigorating atmosphere which played around the whirlpools and pitches of the cataract. A heavy evening breeze swept along the surface of the river and seemed to drive the roar of the falls into the recesses of their own cavern, whence it issued heavily and constant like thunder rumbling beyond the distant hills. The moon had risen, and its light was already glancing here and there on the waters above them. But the extremity of the rock where they stood still lay in shadow. With the exception of the sounds produced by the rushing waters, and the occasional breathing of the air as it murmured past them in fitful currents, the scene was as still as night and solitude could make it. In vain were the eyes of each individual bent along the opposite shores, in quest of some signs of life that might explain the nature of the interruption they had heard. Their anxious and eager looks were baffled by the deceptive light, or rested only on naked rocks and straight and immovable trees. "'Here is nothing to be seen but the gloom and quiet of a lovely evening,' whispered Duncan. How much should we prize such a scene, and all this breathing solitude, at any other moment? Cora, fancy yourselves in security, and what now perhaps increases your terror, may be made conducive to enjoyment. Listen, interrupted Alice, 
the caution was unnecessary. Once more the same sound arose, as if from the bed of the river, and, having broken out of the narrow bounds of the cliffs, was heard undulating through the forest in distant and dying cadences. "'Can any here give a name to such a cry?' demanded Hawkeye, when the last echo was lost in the woods. "'If so, let him speak. For myself, I judge it not to belong to Arth.' "'Here, then, is one who can undeceive you,' said Duncan. "'I know the sound full well, and have often heard it on the field of battle, and in situations which are frequent in a soldier's life. "'Tis the horrid shriek that a horse will give in his agony, oftener drawn from him in pain, though sometimes in terror. My charger is either a prey to the beast of the forest, or he sees his danger without the power to avoid it. The sound might deceive me in the cavern, but in the open air I know it too well to be wrong. The scout and his companions listened to this simple explanation with the interest of men who imbibe new ideas at the same time that they get rid of old ones, which had proved disagreeable inmates. The two latter uttered their usual expressive exclamation, oh! as the truth first glanced upon their minds, while the former, after a short musing pause, took upon himself to reply. I cannot deny your words, he said, for I am little skilled in horses, though born where they abound. The wolves must be hovering above their heads on the bank, and the timorsome creatures are calling on man for help in the best manner they are able. Uncas, he spoke in Delaware, Uncas, drop down to the canoe and whirl a brand among the pack, or fear may do what the wolves can't get at to perform, and leave us without horses in the morning, when we shall have so much need to journey swiftly. The young native had already descended to the water to comply, when a long howl was raised on the edge of the river, and was borne swiftly off into the depths of the forest, as though the beast of their own accord were abandoning their prey in sudden terror. Uncas, with instinctive quickness, receded, and the three foresters held another of their low, earnest conferences. We have been like hunters who have lost the points of the heavens, and from whom the sun has been hid for days, said Hawkeye, turning away from his companions. Now we begin again to know the signs of our course, and the paths are cleared from briars. Seat yourselves in the shade which the moon throws from yonder beach. "'Tis thicker than that of the pines. "'And let us wait that which the Lord may choose to send next. "'Let all your conversation be in whispers, "'though it would be better, and perhaps in the end wiser, "'if each one held discourse with his own thoughts for a time. "'The manner of the scout was seriously impressive, "'though no longer distinguished by any signs of unmanly apprehension.' It was evident that his momentary weakness had vanished, with the explanation of a mystery which his own experience had not served to fathom. And though he now felt all the realities of their actual condition, that he was prepared to meet them with the energy of his hardy nature. This feeling seemed also common to the natives, who placed themselves in positions which commanded a full view of both shores, while their own persons were effectually concealed from observation. In such circumstances, common prudence did
dictated that Hayward and his companions should imitate a caution that proceeded from so intelligent a source. The young man drew a pile of sassafras from the cave, and placing it in the chasm which separated the two caverns, it was occupied by the sisters, who were thus protected by the rocks from any missiles, while their anxiety was relieved by the assurance that no danger could approach without a warning. Hayward himself was posted at hand, so near that he might communicate with his companions without raising his voice to a dangerous elevation, while David, in imitation of the woodsman, bestowed his person in such a manner among the fissures of the rocks that his ungainly limbs were no longer offensive to the eye. In this manner hours passed without further interruption. The moon reached the zenith, and shed its mild light perpendicularly on the lovely sight of the sisters, slumbering peacefully in each other's arms. Duncan cast the wide shawl of Cora before a spectacle he so much loved to contemplate, and then suffered his own head to seek a pillow on the rock. David began to utter sounds that would have shocked his delicate organs in more wakeful moments. In short, all but Hawkeye and the Mohicans lost every idea of consciousness in uncontrollable drowsiness. But the watchfulness of these vigilant protectors neither tired nor slumbered. Immovable as that rock of which each appeared to form a part, they lay with their eyes roving, without intermission, along the dark margin of trees that bounded the adjacent shores of the narrow stream. Not a sound escaped them. The most subtle examination could not have told they breathed. It was evident that this excess of caution proceeded from an experience that no subtlety on the part of their enemies could deceive. It was, however, continued without any apparent consequences, until the moon had set, and a pale streak above the treetops, at the bend of the river a little below, announced the approach of day. Then, for the first time, Hawkeye was seen to stir. He crawled along the rock and shook Duncan from his heavy slumbers. "'Now is the time to journey,' he whispered. "'Awake the gentlemen's, and be ready to get into the canoe, when I bring it to the landing-place.' "'Have you had a quiet night?' said Hayward. "'For myself, I believe sleep has gotten the better of my vigilance.' "'All is yet still as midnight. Be silent, but be quick.' By this time Duncan was thoroughly awake, and he immediately lifted the shawl from the sleeping females. The motion caused Cora to raise her hand as if to repulse him, while Alice murmured in her soft, gentle voice, "'No, no, dear father. We were not deserted. Duncan was with us.' "'Yes, sweet innocence,' whispered the youth. "'Duncan is here. And while life continues, or danger remains.' He will never quit thee. Cora, Alice, awake. The hour has come to move. A loud shriek from the younger of the sisters, and the form of the other standing upright before him in bewildered horror, was the unexpected answer he received. While the words were still on the lips of Hayward, 
there had arisen such a tumult of yells and cries as served to drive the swift currents of his own blood back from its bounding course into the fountains of his heart. It seemed for near a minute as if the demons of hell had possessed themselves of the air about them, and were venting their savage humors in barbarous sounds. The cries came from no particular direction, though it was evident they filled the woods, and as the appalled listeners easily imagined, the caverns of the falls, the rocks, the bed of the river, and the upper air. David raised his tall person in the midst of the infernal din, with a hand on either ear, exclaiming, "'Whence comes this discord? Has hell broke loose that man should utter sounds like these?' The bright flashes and the quick reports of a dozen rifles from the opposite banks of the stream followed this incautious exposure of his person, and left the unfortunate singing-master senseless on that rock where he had been so long slumbering. The Mohicans boldly sent back the intimidating yell of their enemies, who raised a shout of savage triumph at the fall of Gamut. The flash of rifles was then quick and close between them, but either party was too well skilled to leave even a limb exposed to the hostile aim. Duncan listened with intense anxiety for the strokes of the paddle, believing that flight was now their only refuge. The river glanced by with its ordinary velocity, but the canoe was nowhere to be seen on its dark waters. He had just fancied they were cruelly deserted by their scout, as a stream of flame issued from the rock beneath them, and a fierce yell, blended with a shriek of agony, announced that the messenger of death, sent from the fatal weapon of Hawkeye, had found a victim. At this slight repulse, the assailants instantly withdrew, and gradually the place became as still as before the sudden tumult. Duncan seized the favorable moment to spring to the body of Gamut, which he bore within the shelter of the narrow chasm that protected the sisters. In another minute the whole party was collected in this spot of comparative safety. "'The poor fellow has saved his scalp,' said Hawkeye, coolly passing his hand over the head of David. "'But he is proof that a man may be born with too long a tongue.' "'Twas downright madness to show six feet of flesh and blood on a naked rock to the raging savages. I only wonder he has escaped with life.' "'Is he not dead?' demanded Cora, in a voice whose husky tone showed how powerfully natural horror struggled with her assumed firmness. "'Can we do aught to assist the wretched man?' "'No, no. The life is in his heart yet, and after he has slept a while he will come to himself.' and be a wiser man for it, till the hour of his real time shall come, returned Hawkeye, casting another oblique glance at the insensible body, while he filled his charger with admirable nicety. Carry him in, Uncas, and lay him on the sassafras. The longer his nap lasts, the better it will be for him, as I doubt whether he can find a proper cover for such a shape on these rocks. And singing won't do any good with the Iroquois. You believe, then, that the attack will be renewed? asked Hayward. Do I expect a hungry wolf to satisfy his craving with a mouthful? They have lost a man, and tis their fashion when they meet a loss, and fail in the surprise, to fall back. But we shall have them on again, with new expedients to circumvent us, and master our scalps. Our main hope, he continued, 
raising his rugged countenance across which a shade of anxiety just then passed like a darkening cloud, will be to keep the rock until Monroe can send a party to our help. God send it may be soon, and under a leader that knows the Indian customs. You hear our probable fortunes, Cora, said Duncan, and you know we have everything to hope from the anxiety and experience of your father. Come, then, with Alice into this cavern, where you at least will be safe from the murderous rifles of our enemies, and where you may bestow a care suited to your general natures on our unfortunate comrade. The sisters followed him into the outer cave, where David was beginning, by his sighs, to give symptoms of returning consciousness, and then, commending the wounded man to their attention, he immediately prepared to leave them. "'Duncan!' said the tremulous voice of Cora, when he had reached the mouth of the cavern. He turned and beheld the speaker, whose color had changed to a deadly paleness, and whose lips quivered, gazing after him with an expression of interest which immediately recalled him to her side. "'Remember, Duncan, how necessary your safety is to our own, how you bear a father's sacred trust, how much depends on your discretion and care. In short,' she added, while the tell-tale blood stole over her features, crimsoning her very temples, "'how very deservedly dear you are to all of the name Monroe. "'If anything could add to my own base love of life,' said Hayward, suffering his unconscious eyes to wonder to the youthful form of the silent Alice, "'it would be so kind an insurance. "'As Major the Sixtieth, our honest host will tell you I must take my share of the fray. "'But our task will be easy. "'It is merely to keep these bloodhounds at bay for a few hours. "'Without waiting for a reply, he tore himself from the presence of the sisters.' and joined the scout and his companions, who still lay within the protection of the little chasm between the two caves. "'I tell you, Uncas,' said the former, as Hayward joined them, "'you are wasteful of your powder, and the kick of your rifle disconcerts your aim. Little powder, light lead, and a long arm seldom fail of bringing the death-screech from a mingo. At least, such has been my experience with the creatures. Come, friends, let us to our covers, for no man can tell when or where Maqua will strike his blow. Footnote. Mingo was the Delaware term of the five nations. Maquas was the name given them by the Dutch. The French, from their first intercourse with them, called them Iroquois. End footnote. The Indians silently repaired to their appointed stations, which were fissures in the rocks, whence they could command the approaches to the foot of the falls. In the center of the little island a few short and stunted pines had found root, forming a thicket into which Hawkeye darted with the swiftness of a deer, followed by the act of Duncan. Here they secured themselves, as well as circumstances would permit, among the shrubs and fragments of stone that were scattered about the place. Above them was a bare rounded rock, on each side of which the water played its gambols and plunged into the abysses beneath, in the manner already described. As the day had now dawned, 
the opposite shores no longer presented a confused outline, but they were able to look into the woods, and distinguish objects beneath a canopy of gloomy pines. A long and anxious watch succeeded, but without any further evidences of a renewed attack, and Duncan began to hope that their fire had proved more fatal than was supposed, and that their enemies had been effectually repulsed. When he ventured to utter his impression to his companions, it was met by Hawkeye, with an incredulous shake of the head. "'You know not the nature of Amaqua if you think he is so easily beaten back without a scalp,' he answered. "'If there was one of the imps yelling this morning, there were forty, and they know our number and quality too well to give up the chase so soon. Hist! Look into the water above, just where it breaks over the rocks. I am no mortal, if the risky devils haven't swam down to the very pitch, and as bad luck would have it, they have hit the head of the island. Hist! Man! Keep close, or your hair will be off your crown in the turning of a knife. Hayward lifted his head from the cover, and beheld what he justly considered a prodigy of rashness and skill. The river had worn away the edge of the soft rock in such a manner as to render its first pitch less abrupt and perpendicular than is usual at waterfalls. With no other guide than the ripple of the stream where it met the head of the island, a party of their insatiable foes had ventured into the current and swam down upon this point, knowing the ready access it would give, if successful, to their intended victims. As Hawkeye ceased speaking, Four human heads could be seen peering above a few logs of driftwood that had lodged on these naked rocks, and which had probably suggested the idea of the practicability of the hazardous undertaking. At the next moment, a fifth form was seen floating over the green edge of the fall, a little from the line of the island. The savage struggled powerfully to gain the point of safety, and favored by the glancing water, he was already stretching forth an arm to meet the grasp of his companion, when he shot away again with the swirling current, appeared to rise into the air with uplifted arms and starting eyeballs, and fell with a sudden plunge into that deep and yawning abyss over which he hovered. A single wild despairing shriek rose from the cavern, and all was hushed again as the grave. The first generous impulse of Duncan was to rush to the rescue of the hapless wretch, but he felt himself bound to the spot by the iron grasp of the immovable scout. "'Would ye bring certain death upon us by telling the Mingos where we lie?' demanded Hawkeye sternly. "'Tis a charge of powder saved, and ammunition is as precious now as breath to a worried deer. Freshen the priming of your pistols.' The midst of the falls is apt to dampen the brimstone. And stand firm for a close struggle, while I fire on their rush. He placed a finger in his mouth, and drew a long, shrill whistle, which was answered from the rocks that were guarded by the Mohicans. Duncan caught glimpses of heads above the scattered driftwood, as the signal rose on the air, but they disappeared again, as suddenly as they had glanced upon his sight. A low rustling sound next drew his attention behind him, and turning his head he beheld Uncas within a few feet, creeping to his side. Hawkeye spoke to him in Delaware, when the young chief took his position with singular caution, 
and undisturbed coolness. To Hayward, this was a moment of feverish and impatient suspense. Though the scout saw fit to select it, as a fit occasion to read a lecture to his more youthful associates on the art of using firearms with discretion. Of all weapons, he commenced, the long-barreled, true-grooved, soft-metaled rifle is the most dangerous in skillful hands, though it wants a strong arm, a quick eye, and great judgment in charging to put forth all its beauties. The gunsmiths can have but little insight into their trade, when they make their fowling pieces and short horsemen's. He was interrupted by the low but expressive oh! of Uncas. "'I see them, boy, I see them,' continued Hawkeye. "'They are gathering for the rush, or they would keep their dingy backs down below the logs. "'Well, let them,' he added, examining his flint. "'The leading man certainly comes to his death, though it should be Montcalm himself.' At that moment the woods were filled with another burst of cries, and at the signal four savages sprang from the cover of the driftwood. Hayward felt a burning desire to rush forward to meet them, so intense was his delirious anxiety of the moment, but he was restrained by the deliberate examples of the scout and Uncas. When their foes, who had leaped over the black rocks that divided them with long bounds, uttering the wildest yells, were within a few rods, the rifle of Hawkeye slowly rose among the shrubs, and poured out its fatal contents. The foremost Indian bounded like a stricken deer, and fell headlong among the clefts of the island. "'Now, Uncas!' cried the scout, drawing his long knife, while his quick eyes began to flash with ardor. "'Take the last of the screeching imps. Of the other two, we are sartain.' He was obeyed, and but two enemies remained to be overcome. Hayward had given one of his pistols to Hawkeye, and together they rushed down a little declivity toward their foes. They discharged their weapons at the same instant, and equally without success. "'I knowed it, and I said it,' muttered the scout, whirling the despised little implement over the falls in bitter disdain. "'Come on, ye bloody-minded hell-hounds! Ye meet a man without a cross!' The words were barely uttered when he encountered a savage of gigantic stature, of the fiercest mien. At the same moment, Duncan found himself engaged with the other, in a similar contest of hand to hand. With ready skill, Hawkeye and his antagonist each grasped that uplifted arm of the other which held the dangerous knife. For near a minute they stood looking one another in the eye and gradually exerting the power of their muscles for the mastery. At length, the toughened sinews of the white men prevailed over the less practiced limbs of the native. The arm of the latter slowly gave way before the increasing force of the scout, who suddenly, wrestling his armed hand from the grasp of the foe, drove the sharp weapon through his naked bosom to the heart. In the meantime, Hayward had been pressed in a more deadly struggle. His slight sword was snapped in the first encounter. As he was destitute of any other means of defense, his safety now depended entirely on bodily strength and resolution. Though deficient in neither of these qualities, he had met an enemy every way his equal. Happily, he soon succeeded in disarming his adversary, whose knife fell on the rock at their feet. And from this moment it became a fierce struggle 
who should cast the other over the dizzy height into a neighboring cavern of the falls. Every successful struggle brought them nearer to the verge, where Duncan perceived the final and conquering effort must be made. Each of the combatants threw all his energies into that effort, and the result was that both tottered on the brink of the precipice. Hayward felt the grasp of the other at his throat, and saw the grim smile the savage gave under the revengeful hope that he hurried his enemy to a fate similar to his own, as he felt his body slowly yielding to a resistless power, and the young man experienced the passing agony of such a moment in all its horrors. At that instant of extreme danger, a dark hand and a glancing knife appeared before him, the Indian released his hold, as the blood flowed freely from around the severed tendons of the wrist, and while Duncan was drawn backward by the saving hand of Uncas, his charmed eyes still were riveted on the fierce and disappointed countenance of his foe, who fell sullenly and disappointed down the irrecoverable precipice. "'To cover! To cover!' cried Hawkeye, who just then had dispatched the enemy. TO COVER FOR YOUR LIVES. THE WORK IS BUT HALF ENDED. THE YOUNG MOHICAN GAVE A SHOUT OF TRIUMPH, AND FOLLOWED BY DUNCAN, HE GLIDED UP THE ACCLIVITY THEY HAD DESCENDED TO THE COMBAT, AND SOUGHT THE FRIENDLY SHELTER OF THE ROCKS AND SHRUBS. END OF CHAPTER 7 THIS RECORDING BY GARY W. SHERWIN OF Yukon, PENNSYLVANIA IN THE SUMMER OF 2007「The Last of the Mohicans – A Narrative of 1757 – by James Finnamore Cooper This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 8 Quote they linger yet, avengers of their native land. Unquote. By Gray. The warning call of the scout was not muttered without occasion. During the occurrence of the deadly encounter just related, the roar of the falls was unbroken by any human sound whatever. It would seem that interest in the result had kept the natives on the opposite shores in breathless suspense while the quick evolutions and swift changes in the positions of the combatants effectually prevented a fire that might prove dangerous alike to friend and enemy. But the moment the struggle was decided, a yell arose as fierce and savage as wild and revengeful passions could throw into the air. It was followed by the swift flashes of the rifles, which sent their leaden messenger across the rock in volleys, as though the assailants would pour out their impotent fury on the insensible scene of the fatal contest. A steady, though deliberate, return was made from the rifle of Chingachgook, who had maintained his post throughout the fray with unmoved resolution. When the triumphant shout of Uncas was borne to his ears, the gratified father raised his voice in a single responsive cry, after which his busy peace alone proved that he still guarded his pass with unwearied diligence. In this manner, 
Many minutes flew by with the swiftness of thought, the rifles of the assailants speaking at times in rattling volleys, and at others in occasional scattering shots. Though the rock, the trees, and the shrubs were cut and torn in a hundred places around the besieged, their cover was so close and so rigidly maintained that as yet David had been the only sufferer in their little band. "'Let them burn their powder,' said the deliberate scout, while bullet after bullet whizzed by the place where he securely lay. "'There will be a fine gathering of lead when it is over, and I fancy the imps will tire of the sport before these old stones cry out for mercy. Uncas, boy, you waste the colonels by overcharging, and a kicking rifle never carries a true bullet. I told you to take that loping miscreant under the line of white point. Now, if your bullet went a hair's breadth, it went two inches above it. The life lies low in a mingo, and humanity teaches us to make a quick end to the serpents. A quiet smile lighted the haughty features of the young Mohican, betraying his knowledge of the English language, as well as of the other's meaning, but he suffered it to pass away without vindication of reply. I cannot permit you to accuse Uncas of want of judgment or of skill, said Duncan. He saved my life in the coolest and readiest manner, and he has made a friend who will never require to be reminded of the debt he owes. Uncas partly raised his body and offered his hand to the grasp of Hayward. During this act of friendship, the two young men exchanged looks of intelligence which caused Duncan to forget the character and condition of his wild associate. In the meanwhile, Hawkeye, who looked on this burst of youthful feeling with a cool but kind regard, made the following reply. Life is an obligation which friends often owe each other in the wilderness. I dare say I may have served Uncas some such turn myself before now, and I very well remember that he has stood between me and death five different times three times from the Mingos, once in crossing the Horrigan, and— "'That bullet was better aimed than common!' exclaimed Duncan, involuntarily shrinking from a shot which struck the rock at his side with a smart rebound. Hawkeye laid his hand on the shapeless metal and shook his head, as he examined it, saying, "'Falling lead is never flattened. Had it come from the clouds, this might have happened.' But the rifle of Uncas was deliberately raised toward the heavens, directing the eyes of his companions to a point where the mystery was immediately explained. A ragged oak grew on the right bank of the river, nearly opposite to their position, which, seeking the freedom of open space, had inclined so far forward that its upper branches overhung that arm of the stream which flowed nearest to its shore. Among the topmost leaves, which scantily concealed the gnarled and stunted limbs, a savage was nestled, partly concealed by the trunk of the tree, and partly exposed, as though looking down upon them to ascertain the effect produced by his treacherous aim. "'These devils will scale heaven to circumvent us to our ruins,' said Hawkeye. "'Keep him in play, boy, until I can bring Kildeer to bear, when we will try his metal on each side of the tree at once.' Uncas delayed his fire until the scout uttered the word." The rifles flashed, and the leaves and bark of the oak flew into the air and were scattered by the wind, 
but the Indian answered their assault by a taunting laugh, sending down upon them another bullet in return, that struck the cap of Hawkeye from his head. Once more the savage yells burst out of the woods, and the leaden hail whistled above the heads of the besieged, as if to confine them to a place where they might become easy victims to the enterprise of the warrior who had mounted the tree. "'This must be looked to,' said the scout, glancing about him with an anxious eye. "'Uncas, call up your father. We have need of all of our weapons to bring the cunning varmint from his roost.' The signal was instantly given, and before Hawkeye had reloaded his rifle, they were joined by Chingachgook. When his son pointed out to the experienced warrior the situation of their dangerous enemy, the usual exclamatory, oh! burst from his lips, after which no further expression of surprise or alarm was suffered to escape him. Hawkeye and the Mohicans conversed earnestly together in Delaware for a few moments, when each quietly took his post, in order to execute the plan they had speedily devised. The warrior in the oak had maintained a quick though ineffectual fire from the moment of his discovery, but his aim was interrupted by the vigilance of his enemies, whose rifles instantaneously bore on any part of his person that was left exposed. Still his bullets fell in the center of the crouching party. The clothes of Hayward, which rendered him particularly conspicuous, were repeatedly cut, and once blood was drawn from a slight wound in his arm. At length, emboldened by the long and patient watchfulness of his enemies, the Huron attempted a better and more fatal aim. The quick eyes of the Mohicans caught the dark line of his lower limbs, incautiously exposed through the thin foliage, a few inches from the trunk of the tree. Their rifles made a common report. When sinking on his wounded limb, part of the body of the savage came into view. Swift as thought, Hawkeye seized the advantage, and discharged his fatal weapon into the top of the oak. The leaves were unusually agitated. The dangerous rifle fell from its commanding elevation, and after a few moments of vain struggling, the form of the savage was seen swinging in the wind, while he still grasped a ragged and naked branch of the tree, with hands clenched in desperation. "'Give him in pity! Give him the contents of another rifle!' cried Duncan, turning away his eyes in horror from the spectacle of a fellow-creature in such awful jeopardy. "'Not a carnal!' exclaimed the obdurate Hawkeye. "'His death is certain, and we have no powder to spare, for Indian fights sometimes last for days. Tis their scalps or ours, and God, who made us, has put into our natures the craving to keep the skin on the head.' Against this stern and unyielding morality, supported as it was by such visible policy, there was no appeal. From that moment the yells in the forest once more ceased, the fire was suffered to decline, and all eyes, those of friends as well as enemies, became fixed on the hopeless condition of the wretch who was dangling between heaven and earth. The body yielded to the currents of the air and though no murmur or groan escaped the victim, there were instants when he grimly faced his foes, and the anguish of cold despair might be traced through the intervening distance in possession of his swarthy lineaments. Three several times the scout raised his piece in mercy, and as often, prudence getting the better of his intention, 
it was again silently lowered. At length, one hand of the Huron lost its hold and dropped exhausted to his side. A desperate and fruitless struggle to recover the branch succeeded, and then the savage was seen for a fleeting instant, grasping wildly at the empty air. The lightning is not quicker than was the flame from the rifle of Hawkeye. The limbs of the victim trembled and contracted, the head fell to the bosom, and the body parted the foaming waters like lead, when the element closed above it in its ceaseless velocity, and every vestige of the unhappy Huron was lost forever. No shout of triumph succeeded this important advantage, but even the Mohicans gazed at each other in silent horror. A single yell burst from the woods, and all was again still. Hawkeye, who alone appeared to reason on the occasion, shook his head at his own momentary weakness, even uttering his self-disapprobation aloud. "'Twas the last charge in my horn and the last bullet in my pouch, and twas the act of a boy," he said. What mattered whether he struck the rock living or dead? Filling would soon be over. Uncas, lad, go down to the canoe and bring up the big horn. It is all the powder we have left, and we shall need it to the last grain, or I am ignorant of the Mingo nature. The young Mohican complied, leaving the scout turning over the useless contents of his pouch, and shaking the empty horn with renewed discontent. From this unsatisfactory examination, however, he was soon called by a loud and piercing exclamation from Uncas, that sounded even to the unpractised ears of Duncan as the signal of some new and unexpected calamity. Every thought filled with apprehension for the previous treasure he had concealed in the cavern. The young man started to his feet, totally regardless of the hazard he incurred by such an exposure. As if actuated by a common impulse, his movement was imitated by his companions, and together they rushed down the pass to the friendly chasm, with a rapidity that rendered the scattering fire of their enemies perfectly harmless. The unwanted cry had brought the sisters together with the wounded David from their place of refuge, and the whole party, at a single glance, was made acquainted with the nature of the disaster that had disturbed even the practiced stoicism other youthful Indian protector. At a short distance from the rock, their little bark was to be seen floating across the eddy toward the swift current of the river, in a manner which proved that its course was directed by some hidden agent. The instant this unwelcome sight caught the eye of the scout, his rifle was leveled as by instinct, but the barrel gave no answer to the bright sparks of the flint. "'Tis too late! "'Tis too late!' Hawkeye exclaimed, dropping the useless piece in bitter disappointment. "'The miscreant has struck the rapid, and, had we powder, it could hardly send the lead swifter than he now goes.' The adventurous Huron raised his head above the shelter of the canoe, and while it glided swiftly down the stream, he waved his hand and gave forth the shout, which was the known signal of success. His cry was answered by a yell and a laugh from the woods, as tauntingly exulting as if fifty demons were uttering their blasphemies at the fall of some Christian soul. "'Well may you laugh, ye children of the devil,' said the scout, seating himself on a projection of the rock, 
and suffering his gun to fall neglected at his feet. For the three quickest and truest rifles in these woods are no better than so many stalks of mullen or the last year's horns of a buck. "'What is to be done?' demanded Duncan, losing the first feeling of disappointment in a more manly desire for exertion. "'What will become of us?' Hawkeye made no other reply than by passing his finger around the crown of his head, in a manner so significant that none who witnessed the action could mistake its meaning. "'Surely our case is not so desperate,' exclaimed the youth. "'The Hurons are not here. We may make good the caverns. We may oppose their landing.' "'With what?' coolly demanded the scout. "'The heirs of Uncas? Or such tears as women shed? No, no.' You are young and rich and have friends, and at such an age, I know, it is hard to die. But, glancing his eyes at the Mohicans, let us remember we are men without a cross, and let us teach these natives of the forest that white blood can run as freely as red when the appointed hour is come. Duncan turned quickly in the direction indicated by the other's eyes, and read a confirmation of his worst apprehensions in the conduct of the Indians. Chingachgook, placing himself in a dignified posture on another fragment of the rock, had already laid aside his knife and tomahawk, and was in the act of taking the eagle plume from his head, and smoothing the solitary tuft of hair, in readiness to perform its last and revolting office. His countenance was composed, though thoughtful, while his dark gleaming eyes were gradually losing the fierceness of the combat, in an expression better suited to the change he expected momentarily to undergo. "'Our case cannot be so hopeless,' said Duncan. "'Even at this very moment succor may be at hand. I see no enemies. They have sickened of a struggle in which they risk so much with so little prospect of gain. It may be a minute, or it may be an hour, afore the wily serpents steal upon us.' "'And it is quite in nature for them to be lying within hearing at this very moment,' said Hawkeye. "'But come they will, and in such a fashion as will leave us nothing to hope.' "'Chingachgook,' he spoke in Delaware. "'My brother, we have fought our last battle together, "'and the Maquas will triumph in the death of the sage man of the Mohicans, "'and of the pale-face, whose eyes can make night as day, "'and level the clouds to the mist of the springs.' "'Let the Mingo women weep over the slain,' returned the Indian, with characteristic pride and unmoved firmness. "'The great snake of the Mohicans has coiled himself in their wigwams, and has poisoned their triumph with the wailings of children, whose fathers have not returned. Eleven warriors lie hid from the graves of their tribes since the snows have melted, and none will tell where to find them when the tongue of Chingachgook shall be silent.' Let them draw the sharpest knife, and whirl the swiftest tomahawk, for their bitterest enemy is in their hands. Uncas, topmost branch of a noble trunk, call on the cowards to hasten, or their hearts will soften, and they will change to women. They look among the fishes for their dead, returned the low, soft voice of the youthful chieftain. The Hurons float with the slimy eels. They drop from the oaks like fruit that is ready to be eaten, and the Delawares laugh. 
Ay, ay, muttered the scout, who had listened to this peculiar burst of the natives with deep attention. They have warmed their Indian feelings, and they'll soon provoke the Maquas to give them a speedy end. As for me, who am the whole blood of the whites, it is befitting that I should die as becomes my color. With no words of scoffing in my mouth, and without bitterness at the heart. Why die at all? said Cora, advancing from the place where natural horror had until this moment held her riveted to the rock. The path is open on every side. Fly then to the woods, and call on God for succor. Go, brave men! We owe you too much already. Let us no longer involve you in our hapless fortunes. You know little of the craft of the Iroquois lady, if you judge they have left the path open to the woods, returned Hawkeye, who, however, immediately added in his simplicity, the downstream current, it is certain, might soon sweep us beyond the reach of their rifles, or the sound of their voices. Then try the river. Why linger to add to the number of the victims of our merciless enemies? Why, repeated the scout, looking about him proudly, because it is better for a man to die at peace with himself than to live haunted by an evil conscience. What answer could we give Monroe when he asked us where and how we left his children? Go to him, and say that you left them with a message to hasten their aid, returned Cora, advancing nigher to the scout in her generous ardor. That the Hurons bear them into the northern wilds, but that by vigilance and speed they may be rescued, and if, after all, it should please heaven in its assistance, come too late, bear to him. She continued, her voice gradually lowering, until it seemed nearly choked. The love, the blessings, the final prayers of his daughters, and bid him not mourn their early fate but to look forward with humble confidence to the Christian's goal to meet his children. The hard, well-beaten features of the scout began to work, and when she had ended, he dropped his chin to his hand, like a man musing profoundly on the nature of the proposal. There is reason in her words, at length broke from his compressed and trembling lips. I... They bear the spirit of Christianity. What might be right and proper in a redskin may be sinful in a man who has not even a cross in blood to plead for his ignorance. Chingachgook, Uncas, hear the talk of the dark-eyed woman. He now spoke in Delaware to his companions, and his address, though calm and deliberate, seemed very decided. The elder Mohican heard with deep gravity, and appeared to ponder on his words, as though he felt the importance of their import. After a moment of hesitation, he waved his hand in assent, and muttered the English word, Good, with the peculiar emphasis of his people. Then, replacing his knife and tomahawk in his girdle, the warrior moved silently to the edge of the rock, which was most concealed from the banks of the river. Here he paused a moment, pointed significantly to the woods below, and saying a few words in his own language, 
as if indicating his intended route, he dropped into the water and sank from before the eyes of the witnesses of his movements. The scout delayed his departure to speak to the generous girl, whose breathing became lighter as she saw the success of her remonstrance. "'Wisdom is sometimes given to the young as well as the old,' he said. "'And what you have spoken is wise. "'Not to call it by a better word. "'If you are led into the woods, "'that is, such of you as may be spared for a while, "'break the twigs on the bushes as you pass, "'and make the marks of your trail as broad as you can, "'when, if mortal eyes can see them, "'depend on having a friend who will follow to the ends of the earth before he deserts you. He gave Cora an affectionate shake of the hand, lifted his rifle, and after regarding it a moment, with melancholy solicitude, laid it carefully aside, and descended to the place where Chingachgook had just disappeared. For an instant he hung, suspended by the rock, and looking about him with a countenance of peculiar care, he added bitterly, "'Had the powder held out, this disgrace could never have befallen.' Then, losing his hold, the water closed over his head, and he also became lost to view. All eyes now were turned on Uncas, who stood leaning against the ragged rock in immovable composure. After waiting a short time, Cora pointed down the river and said, your friends have not been seen, and are now most probably in safety. Is it not time for you to follow? Ancas will stay, the young Mohican calmly answered in English. To increase the horror of our capture, and diminish the chances of our release? Go, generous young man, Cora continued, lowering her eyes under the gaze of the Mohican, and perhaps with an intuitive consciousness of her power. Go to my father, as I have said, and be the most confidential of my messengers. Tell him to trust you with the means to buy the freedom of his daughters. Go! Tis my wish, tis my prayer that you will go. The settled, calm look of the young chief changed to an expression of gloom, but he no longer hesitated. With a noiseless step he crossed the rock and dropped into the troubled stream. Hardly a breath was drawn by those left behind, until they caught a glimpse of his head emerging for air far down the current, when he again sank and was seen no more. These sudden and apparently successful experiments had all taken place in a few minutes of that time which had now become so precious. After a last look at Uncas, Cora turned and with a quivering lip addressed herself to Hayward. "'I have heard... "'You boasted skill in the water, too, Duncan,' she said. "'Follow, then, the wise example set you by these simple and faithful beings.' "'Is such the faith that Cora Monroe would extract from her protector?' said the young man, smiling mournfully, but with bitterness. "'This is not a time for idle subtleties and false opinions,' she answered. "'But a moment when every duty should be equally considered.' To us you can be of no further service here, but your precious life may be saved for other and nearer friends. He made no reply, though his eye fell wistfully on the beautiful form of Alice, who was clinging to his arm with the dependency of an infant. 
"'Consider,' continued Cora, after a pause, during which she seemed to struggle with a pang even more acute than any that her fears had excited, "'that the worst to us can be but death, a tribute that all must pay for the good time of God's appointment.' "'There are evils worse than death,' said Duncan, speaking hoarsely, and as if fretful at her importunity, "'but which the presence of one who would die in your behalf may avert.' Cora ceased her entreaties, and, veiling her face in her shawl, drew the nearly insensible Alice after her into the deepest recess of the inner cavern. End of chapter 8 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the summer of 2007. Chapter 9 of The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 9 Quote, Be gay securely. Dispel my faith with smiles, the timorous clouds that hang on my clear brow. Unquote. From Death of Agrippina The sudden and almost magical change from the stirring incidents of the combat to the stillness that now reigned around him acted on the heated imagination of Hayward like some exciting dream, while all the images and events he had witnessed remained deeply impressed on his memory, he felt a difficulty in persuading him of their truth. Still ignorant of the fate of those who had trusted to the aid of the swift current, he at first listened intently to any signal or sounds of alarm which might announce the good or evil fortune of their hazardous undertaking. His attention, however, was bestowed in vain, for with the disappearance of Uncas, every sign of the adventurers had been lost, leaving him in total uncertainty of their fate. In a moment of such painful doubt, Duncan did not hesitate to look around him, without consulting that protection from the rocks, which just before had been so necessary to his safety. Every effort, however, to detect the least evidence of the approach of their hidden enemies, was as fruitless as the inquiry after his late companions. The wooded banks of the river seemed again deserted by everything possessing animal life. The uproar which had so lately echoed through the vaults of the forest was gone, leaving the rush of the waters to swell and sink on the currents of the air in the unmingled sweetness of nature. A fish-hawk, which, secure on the topmost branches of a dead pine, had been a distant spectator of the fray, now swooped from his high and ragged perch, and soared in wide sweeps above his prey, while a jay, whose noisy voice had been stilled by the hoarser cries of the savages, ventured again to open his discordant throat, as though once more in undisturbed possession of his wild domains. Duncan caught from these natural accompaniments of the solitary scene a glimmering of hope, and he began to rally his facilities to renewed exertions, with something like a reviving confidence of success. "'The Hurons are not to be seen,' he said, addressing David, 
who had by no means recovered from the effects of the stunning blow he had received, let us conceal ourselves in the cavern, and trust the rest to Providence. I remember to have united with two comely maidens in lifting up our voices in praise and thanksgiving, returned the bewildered singing-master, since which time I have been visited by a heavy judgment for my sins. I have been mocked with the likeness of sleep, while sounds of discord have rent my ears, such as might manifest the fullness of time, and that nature had forgotten her harmony. Poor fellow! Thine own period was, in truth, near its accomplishment. But arouse, and come with me. I will lead you where all other sounds but those from your own psalmody shall be excluded. There is melody in the fall of the cataract, and the rushing of many waters is sweet to the senses, said David, pressing his hand confusedly on his brow. Is not the air yet filled with shrieks and cries, as though the departed spirits of the damned? Not now, not now, interrupted the impatient Hayward. They have ceased, and they who raised them, I trust in God. They are gone too. Everything but the water is still and at peace in them, where you may create those sounds you love so well to hear. David smiled sadly, though not without a momentary gleam of pleasure, at this allusion to his beloved vocation. He no longer hesitated to be led to a spot which promised such unalloyed gratification to his wearied senses, and leaning on the arm of his companion, he entered the narrow mouth of the cave. Duncan seized a pile of sassafras, which he drew before the passage, studiously concealing every appearance of an aperture. Within this fragile barrier he arranged the blankets abandoned by the foresters, darking the inner extremity of the cavern, while its outer received a chastened light from the narrow ravine, through which one arm of the river rushed to form the junction with its sister branch, a few rods below. I like not the principle of the natives, which teaches them to submit without a struggle, in emergencies that appear desperate, he said, while busied in his employment. Our own maxim which says, while life remains there is hope, is more consoling, and better suited to a soldier's temperament. To you, Cora, I will urge no words of idle encouragement. Your own fortitude and undisturbed reason will teach you all that may become your sex. But cannot we dry the tears of that trembling weeper on your bosom? I am calmer, Duncan, said Alice, raising herself from the arms of her sister, and forcing an appearance of composure through her tears. Much calmer now. Surely, in this hidden spot, we are safe, we are secret, free from injury. We will hope everything from those generous men who have risked so much already in our behalf. Now does our gentle Alice speak like the daughter of Monroe, said Hayward, pausing to press her hand as he passed toward the outer entrance of the cavern. With two such examples of courage before him, a man would be ashamed to prove other than a hero. He then seated himself in the center of the cavern, grasping his remaining pistol with a hand convulsively clenched while his contracted and frowning eye announced the sullen desperation of his purpose. The Hurons, if they come, may not gain our position so easily as they think, he slowly muttered, 
and propping his head back against the rock, he seemed to await the result in patience, though his gaze was unceasingly bent on the open avenue to their place of retreat. With the last sound of his voice, a deep, a long, and almost breathless silence succeeded. The fresh air of the morning had penetrated the recess, and its influence was gradually felt on the spirits of its inmates. As minute after minute passed by, leaving them in undisturbed security, the insinuating feeling of hope was gradually gaining possession of every bosom, though each one felt reluctant to give utterance to expectations that the next moment might so fearfully destroy. David alone formed an exception to these varying emotions. A gleam of light from the opening crossed his wan countenance and fell upon the pages of the little volume, whose leaves he was again occupied in turning, as if searching for some song more fitted to their condition than any that had yet met their eye. He was most probably acting all this time under a confused recollection of the promised consolation of Duncan. At length, it would seem, his patient industry found its reward, for, without explanation or apology, he pronounced aloud the words, Isle of White, drew a long sweet sound from his pitch-pipe, and then ran through the preliminary modulations of the air, whose name he had just mentioned, with the sweeter tones of his own musical voice. May this not prove dangerous? asked Cora, glancing her dark eye at Major Hayward. Poor fellow! His voice is too feeble to be heard above the din of the falls, was the answer. Beside, the cavern will prove his friend. Let him indulge his passions, since it may be done without hazard. Isle of Wight, repeated David looking about him with that dignity with which he had long been wont to silence the whispering echoes of his skull. "'Tis a brave tune, and set to solemn words. Let it be sung with meet respect." After allowing a moment of stillness to enforce his discipline, the voice of the singer was heard, in low, murmuring syllables, gradually stealing on the ear until it filled the narrow vault with sounds rendered trebly thrilling by the feeble and tremulous utterance produced by his debility. The melody, which no weakness could destroy, gradually wrought its sweet influence on the senses of those who heard it. It even prevailed over the miserable travesty of the song of David, which the singer had selected from a volume of similar effusions, and caused the sense to be forgotten in the insinuating harmony of the sounds. Alice unconsciously dried her tears and bent her melting eyes on the pallid features of Gamut, with an expression of chastened delight that she neither affected nor wished to conceal. Cora bestowed an approving smile on the pious efforts of the namesake of the Jewish prince, and Hayward soon turned his steady stern look from the outlet of the cavern to fasten it with a milder character on the face of David, or to meet the wandering beams which at moments strayed from the humid eyes of Alice. The open sympathy of the listeners stirred the spirit of the votary of music, whose voice regained its richness and volume, without losing that touching softness which proved its secret charm. Exerting his renovated powers to their utmost, he was yet filling the arches of the cave with long and full tones, when a yell burst into the air without 
that instantly stilled his pious strains, choking his voice suddenly as though his heart had literally bounded into the passage of his throat. "'We are lost!' exclaimed Alice, throwing herself into the arms of Cora. "'No, not yet,' returned the agitated but undaunted Hayward. "'The sound came from the center of the island, and it has been produced by the sight of their dead companions. We are not yet discovered, and there is still hope.' Faint and almost despairing as was the prospect of escape, the words of Duncan were not thrown away, for it awakened the powers of the sisters in such a manner that they awaited the results in silence. A second yell soon followed the first, then a rush of voices was heard pouring down the island from its upper to its lower extremity, until they reached the naked rock above the caverns, where, after a shout of savage triumph, the air continued full of horrible cries and screams, such as man alone can utter, and he only went in a state of the fiercest barbarity. The sounds quickly spread around them in every direction. Some called to their fellows from the water's edge, and were answered from the heights above. Cries were heard in the startling vicinity of the chasm between the two caves, which mingled with hoarser yells that arose out of the abyss of the deep ravine. In short, so rapidly had the savage sounds diffused themselves over the barren rock that it was not difficult for the anxious listeners to imagine they could be heard beneath, as in truth they were above on every side of them. In the midst of this tumult, a triumphant yell was raised within a few yards of the hidden entrance to the cave. Hayward abandoned every hope with the belief it was the signal that they were discovered. Again, the impression passed away as he heard the voices collect near the spot where the white man had so reluctantly abandoned his rifle. Amid the jargon of Indian dialects that he now plainly heard, it was easy to distinguish not only words but sentences in the patois of the Canadas. A burst of voices had shouted simultaneously, La Long Carabine! causing the opposite woods to re-echo with the name which Hayward well remembered had been given by his enemies to a celebrated hunter and scout of the English camp, and who he now learned for the first time had been his late companion. La Long Carabine! La Long Carabine! passed from mouth to mouth, until the whole band appeared to be collected around a trophy which would seem to announce the death of its formidable owner. After a vociferous consultation, which was at time deafened by burst of savage joy, they again separated filling the air with the name of a foe, whose body Haywood could collect from their expressions they hoped to find concealed in some crevice of the island. Now, he whispered to the trembling sisters, now is the moment of uncertainty. If our place of retreat escape this scrutiny, we are still safe. In every event, we are assured by what has fallen from our enemies that our friends have escaped, and in two short hours we may look for succor from Webb. There were now a few minutes of fearful stillness, during which Hayward well knew that the savages conducted their search with greater vigilance and method. More than once he could distinguish their footsteps as they brushed the sassafras, causing the faded leaves to rustle and the branches to snap. At length the pile yielded a little, a corner of a blanket fell, and a faint ray of light gleamed into the inner part of the cave. 
Cora folded Alice to her bosom in agony, and Duncan sprang to his feet. A shout was at that moment heard as if issuing from the center of the rock, announcing that the neighboring cavern had at length been entered. In a minute the number and loudness of the voices indicated that the whole party was collected in and around that secret place. As the inner passages of the two caves were so close to each other, Duncan, believing that escape was no longer possible, passed David and the sisters to place himself between the latter and the first onset of the terrible meeting. Grown desperate by his situation, he drew nigh the slight barrier which separated him only a few feet from his relentless pursuers, and placing his face to the casual opening, he even looked out with a sort of desperate indifference on their movements. Within reach of his arm was the brawny shoulder of a gigantic Indian, whose deep and authoritative voice appeared to give directions to the proceedings of his fellows. Beyond him again, Duncan could look into the vault opposite, which was filled with savages, upturning and rifling the humble furniture of the scout. The wound of David had dyed the leaves of sassafras with a color that the native knew well as anticipating the season. Over this sign of their success, they sent up a howl, like an opening from so many hounds who had recovered a lost trail. After this yellow victory, they tore up the fragrant bed of the cavern and bore the branches into the chasm scattering the boughs as if they suspected them of concealing the person of the man they had so long hated and feared one fierce and wild-looking warrior approached the chief bearing a load of the brush and pointing exultingly to the deep red stains with which it was sprinkled uttered his joy in indian yells whose meaning hayward was only enabled to comprehend by the frequent repetition of the name la long carabine when his triumph had ceased, he cast the brush onto the slight heap Duncan had made before the entrance of the second cavern, and closed the view. His example was followed by others, who, as they drew the branches from the cave of the scout, threw them into one pile, adding, unconsciously, to the security of those they sought. The very slightness of the defense was its chief merit, for no one thought of disturbing a mass of brush which all of them believed, in that moment of hurry and confusion, had been accidentally raised by the hands of their own party. As the blankets yielded before the outward pressure, and the branches settled in the fissure of the rock by their own weight, forming a compact body, Duncan once more breathed freely. With a light step and a lighter heart, he returned to the center of the cave, and took the place he had left, where he could command a view of the opening next the river. While he was in the act of making this movement, the Indians, as if changing their purpose by a common impulse, broke away from the chasm in a body, and were heard rushing up the island again toward the point whence they had originally descended. Here another wailing cry betrayed that they were again collected around the bodies of their dead comrades. Duncan now ventured to look at his companions, for, during most of the critical moments of their danger, he had been apprehensive that the anxiety of his countenance might communicate some additional alarm to those who were so little able to sustain it. "'They are gone, Cora,' he whispered. "'Alice, they are returned whence they came, and we are saved. To heaven that has alone delivered us from the grasp of so merciless an enemy, 
be all praise. Then to heaven I will return my thanks, exclaimed the younger sister, rising from the encircling arm of Cora, and casting herself with enthusiastic gratitude on the naked rock. To that heaven which has spared the tears of a gray-headed father has saved the lives of those I so much love. Both Hayward and the more temperate Cora witnessed the act of involuntary emotion with powerful sympathy. The former, secretly believing that piety had never worn a form so lovely as it had now assumed in the youthful person of Alice. Her eyes were radiant with the glow of grateful feelings. The flush of her beauty was again seated on her cheeks, and her whole soul seemed ready and anxious to pour out its thanksgiving through the medium of her eloquent features. But when her lips moved, the words they should have uttered appeared frozen by some new and sudden chill. Her bloom gave place to the paleness of death. Her soft and melting eyes grew hard, and seemed contracting with horror, while those hands which she had raised, clasped in each other toward heaven, dropped in horizontal lines before her, the fingers pointed forward in convulsed motion. Hayward turned the instant she gave a direction to his suspicions, and peering just above the ledge which formed the threshold of the open outlet of the cavern, he beheld the malignant, fierce, and savage features of Lurinhard Subtil. In that moment of surprise, the self-possession of Hayward did not desert him. He observed by the vacant expression of the Indian's countenance that his eye, accustomed to the open air, had not yet been able to penetrate the dusky light which pervaded the depth of the cavern. He had even thought of retreating beyond a curvature in the natural wall which might still conceal him and his companions, when by the sudden gleam of intelligence that shot across the features of the savage, he saw it was too late, and that they were betrayed. The look of exaltation and brutal triumph which announced this terrible truth was irresistibly irritating. Forgetful of everything but the impulses of his hot blood, Duncan leveled his pistol and fired. The report of the weapon made the cavern below like an eruption from a volcano, and when the smoke it vomited had been driven away before the current of air which issued from the ravine, the place so lately occupied by the features of his treacherous guide was vacant. Rushing to the outlet, Hayward caught a glimpse of his dark figure stealing around a low and narrow ledge, which soon hid him entirely from sight. Among the savages, a frightful stillness succeeded the explosion, which had just been heard bursting from the bowels of the rock. But when Le Renard raised his voice in the long and intelligible hoop, it was answered by a spontaneous yell from the mouth of every Indian within hearing of the sound. The clamorous noises again rushed down the island, and before Duncan had time to recover from the shock, his feeble barrier of brush was scattered to the winds. The cavern was entered at both its extremities, and he and his companions were dragged from their shelter and borne into the day, where they stood surrounded by the whole band of the triumphant Hurons. End of chapter 9 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the summer of 2007. Chapter 10 of The Last of the Mohicans 
A Narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 10 Quote, I fear we shall outsleep the coming morn, as much as we this night have overwatched. Unquote. From Midsummer Night's Dream The instant the shock of this sudden misfortune had abated, Duncan began to make his observations on the appearance and proceedings of their captors. Contrary to the usages of the natives in the wantonness of their success, they had respected not only the persons of the trembling sisters, but his own. The rich ornaments of his military attire had indeed been repeatedly handled by different individuals of the tribes, with eyes expressing a savage longing to possess the baubles. But, before the customary violence could be resorted to, a mandate in the authoritative voice of the large warrior, already mentioned, stayed the uplifted hand, and convinced Hayward that they were to be reserved for some object of particular moment. While, however, these manifestations of weakness were exhibited by the young in vain of the party, the more experienced warriors continued their search throughout both caverns, with an activity that denoted they were far from being satisfied with those fruits of their conquest which had already been brought to light. Unable to discover any new victim, these diligent workers of vengeance soon approached their male prisoners pronouncing the name, LA LONG CARABINE, with a fierceness that could not be easily mistaken. Duncan affected not to comprehend the meeting of the repeated and violent interrogatories, while his companion was spared the effort of a similar deception by his ignorance of French. Wearied at length by their importunities, and apprehensive of irritating his captors by too stubborn a silence, the former looked about him in quest of Maqua, who might interpret his answers to questions, which were at each moment becoming more earnest and threatening. The conduct of this savage had formed a solitary exception to that of his fellows, while the others were busily occupied in seeking to gratify their childish passion for finery, by plundering even the miserable effects of the scout, or had been searching with such bloodthirsty vengeance in their looks for their absent owner. Le Renard had stood at a little distance from the prisoners, with a demeanour so quiet and satisfied as to betray that he had already effected the grand purpose of his treachery. When the eyes of Hayward first met those of his recent guide, he turned them away in horror at the sinister though calm look he encountered. Conquering his disgust, however, he was able, with an averted face, to address his successful enemy. "'Le Renaud Subtil is too much of a warrior,' said the reluctant Hayward, "'to refuse telling an unarmed man what his conquerors say. "'They ask for the hunter, who knows the path through the woods.' returned Maqua, in his broken English, laying his hand at the same time, with a ferocious smile, on the bundle of leaves with which a wound on his shoulder was bandaged. "'La Long Carabine!' 
his rifle is good, and his eye never shut. But like the shortcut of the white chief, it is nothing against the life of Lape Subtil. Lid Renard is too brave to remember the hurts received in war, or the hands that gave them. Was it war when the tired Indian rested at the sugar tree to taste his corn? Who filled the bushes with creeping enemies? Who drew the knife whose tongue was of peace while his heart was colored with blood? Did Maqua say that the hatchet was out of the ground and that his hand had dug it up? As Duncan dared not retort upon his accuser by reminding him of his own premeditated treachery, and disdained to deprecate his resentment by any words of apology, he remained silent. Maqua seemed also content to rest the controversy as well as all further communication there, for he resumed the leaning attitude against the rock from which, in momentary energy, he had arisen. But the cry of, Le long carabine! was renewed the instant the impatient savages perceived that the short dialogue was ended. "'You hear,' said Maqua with stubborn indifference, "'the Red Hurons call for the life of the long rifle, "'or they will have the blood of him that kept him hid. "'He is gone, escaped. "'He is far beyond their reach.' "'Renard smiled with cold contempt as he answered. "'When the white man dies,' He thinks he is at peace, but the red men know how to torture even the ghost of their enemies. Where is his body? Let the Hurons see his scalp. He is not dead, but escaped. Maqua shook his head incredulously. Is he a bird to spread his wings, or is he a fish to swim without air? The white chief read in his books, and he believes the Hurons are fools. Though no fish, the long rifle can swim. He floated down the stream when the powder was all burned, and when the eyes of the Hurons were behind a cloud. And why did the white chief stay? demanded the incredulous Indian. Is he a stone that goes to the bottom, or does the scalp burn his head? That I am not stone, your dead comrade who fell into the falls might answer, were there still life in him said the provoked young man, using in his anger that boastful language which was most likely to excite the admiration of an Indian. The white man thinks none but cowards desert their women. Maqua muttered a few words inaudibly between his teeth, before he continued aloud. Can the Delaware swim, too, as well as crawl in the bushes? Where is Le Gros Serpent? Duncan, who perceived by the use of these Canadian appellations that his late companions were much better known to his enemies than to himself, answered reluctantly, He also is gone down with the water. Le Serfagil is not here. I know not whom you call the nimble deer, said Duncan gladly, profiting by any excuse to create delay. Um returned Maqua, pronouncing the Delaware name with even greater difficulty than he spoke his English words. Bounding elk.
is what the white man says when he calls to the young Mohican. Here is some confusion in names between us, Le Renard, said Duncan, hoping to provoke a discussion. Dame is the French for deer, and surf for stag. Elan is the true term, when one would speak of an elk. Yes, muttered the Indian in his native tongue. The pale-faces are prattling women. They have two words for each thing, while a redskin will make the sound of his voice speak to him. Then, changing his language, he continued, adhering to the imperfect nomenclature of his provincial instructors. The deer is swift but weak. The elk is swift but strong. And the son of Le Serpent is Le Serf. Hadjil. Has he leaped the river to the woods? If you mean the younger Delaware, he too has gone down with the water. As there was nothing improbable to an Indian in the manner of the escape, Maqua admitted the truth of what he had heard, with a readiness that afforded additional evidence how little he would prize such worthless captives. With his companions, however, the feeling was manifestly different. The Hurons had awaited the result of this short dialogue with characteristic patience, and with a silence that increased until there was a general stillness in the band. When Hayward ceased to speak, they turned their eyes as one man on Maqua, demanding in this expressive manner an explanation of what had been said. Their interpreter pointed to the river, and made them acquainted with the result, as much by the action as by the few words he uttered. When the fact was generally understood, the savages raised a frightful yell, which declared the extent of their disappointment. Some ran furiously to the water's edge, beating the air with frantic gestures, while others spat upon the element, to resent the supposed treason it had committed against their acknowledged rights as conquerors. A few, and they not the least powerful and terrific of the band, threw lowering looks in which the fiercest passion was only tempered by habitual self-command at those captives who still remained in their power while one or two even gave vent to their malignant feelings by the most menacing gestures against which neither the sex nor the beauty of the sisters was any protection. The young soldier made a desperate but fruitless effort to spring to the side of Alice, when he saw the dark hand of a savage twisted in the rich tresses, which were flowing in volumes over her shoulders, while a knife was passed around the head from which they fell, as if to denote the horrid manner in which it was about to be robbed of its beautiful ornament. But his hands were bound, and at the first movement he made, he felt the grasp of the powerful Indian who directed the band, pressing his shoulder like a vice. Immediately conscious how unavailing any struggle against such overwhelming force must prove, he submitted to his fate encouraging his gentle companions by a few low and tender assurances that the natives seldom failed to threaten more than they performed.
But while Duncan resorted to these words of consolation to quiet the apprehensions of the sisters, he was not so weak as to deceive himself. He well knew that the authority of an Indian chief was so little conventional that it was oftener maintained by physical superiority than by any moral supremacy he might possess. The danger was, therefore, magnified exactly in proportion to the number of savage spirits by which they were surrounded. The most positive mandate from him who seemed the acknowledged leader was liable to be violated at each moment by any rash hand that might choose to sacrifice a victim to the manes of some dead friend or relative. While, therefore, he sustained an outward appearance of calmness and fortitude, his heart leaped into his throat whenever any of their fierce captors drew nearer than common to the helpless sisters, or fastened one of their solemn, wondering looks on those fragile forms, which were so little able to resist the slightest assault. His apprehensions were, however, greatly relieved, when he saw that the leader had summoned his warriors to himself in council. Their deliberations were short, and it would seem, by the silence of most of the party, the decision unanimous. By the frequency with which the few speakers pointed in the direction of the encampment of Webb, it was apparent they dreaded the approach of danger from that quarter. This consideration probably hastened their determination, and quickened the subsequent movements. During his short conference, Hayward, finding a respite from his gravest fears, had leisure to admire the cautious manner in which the Hurons had made their approaches, even after hostilities had ceased. It has already been stated that the upper half of the island was a naked rock, and destitute of any other defences than a few scattered logs of driftwood. They had selected this point to make their descent, having borne the canoe through the wood around the cataract for that purpose. Placing their arms in the little vessel, a dozen men, clinging to its sides, had trusted themselves to the direction of the canoe, which was controlled by two of the most skilful warriors, in attitudes that enabled them to command a view of the dangerous passage. Favored by this arrangement, they touched the head of the island at that point which had proved so fatal to their first adventures, but with the advantages of superior numbers and the possession of firearms. That such had been the manner of their descent was rendered quite apparent to Duncan, for they now bore the light bark from the upper end of the rock, and placed it in the water near the mouth of the outer cavern. As soon as this change was made, the leader made signs to the prisoners to descend and enter. As resistance was impossible, and remonstrance useless, Hayward set the example of submission, by leading the way into the canoe, where he was soon seated with the sisters and the still-wandering David. Notwithstanding the Hurons were necessarily ignorant of the little channels among the eddies and rapids of the streams, they knew the common signs of such a navigation too well to commit any material blunder. When the pilot chosen for the task of guiding the canoe had taken his station, the whole band plunged again into the river, 
the vessel glided down the current, and in a few moments the captives found themselves on the south bank of the stream, nearly opposite to the point where they had struck it the preceding evening. Here was held another short but earnest consultation, during which the horses, to whose panic their owners ascribed their heaviest misfortune, were led from the covert of the woods and brought to the sheltered spot. The band now divided, the great chief, so often mentioned, mounting the charger of Hayward, led the way directly across the river, followed by most of his people, and disappeared in the woods, leaving the prisoners in charge of six savages, at whose head was Le Renard Subtil. Duncan witnessed all their movements with renewed uneasiness. He had been fond of believing, from the uncommon forbearance of the savages, that he was reserved as a prisoner to be delivered to Montcalm, as the thoughts of those who were in misery seldom slumber, and the invention is never more likely than when it is stimulated by hope, however feeble and remote. He had even imagined that the parental feelings of Monroe were to be made instrumental in seducing him from his duty to the king. For, though the French commander bore a high character for courage and enterprise, he was also thought to be an expert in those political practices, which do not always respect the nicer obligations of morality, and which so generally disgraced the European diplomacy of that period. All those busy and ingenious speculations were now annihilated by the conduct of his captors. That portion of the band who had followed the huge warrior took the route toward the foot of the hurricane, and no other expectation was left for himself and companions than that they were to be retained as hopeless captives by their savage conquerors. Anxious to know the worst, and willing, in such an emergency, to try the potency of gold, he overcame his reluctance to speak to Maqua, addressing himself to his former guide, who had now assumed the authority and manner of one who was to direct the future movements of the party. He said, in tones as friendly and confiding as he could assume, I would speak to Maqua what is fit only for so great a chief to hear. The Indian turned his eyes on the young soldier scornfully as he answered, Speak. Trees have no ears, but the red Hurons are not deaf, and counsel that is fit for the great men of a nation would make the young warriors drunk. If Maqua will not listen, the officer of the king knows how to be silent. The savage spoke carelessly to his comrades, who were busied after their awkward manner in preparing the horses for the reception of the sisters, and moved a little to one side, whither by a cautious gesture he induced Hayward to follow. Now speak, he said, if the words are such as Maqua should hear. Le Renaud Subtil has proved himself worthy of the honorable name given to him by his Canada fathers, commenced Hayward. I see his wisdom, and all that he has done for us, and shall remember it when the hour to reward him arrives. Yes, Renard has proved that he is not only a great chief in council, but one 
who knows how to deceive his enemies. What has Renard done? coldly demanded the Indian. What? Has he not seen that the woods were filled with outlying parties of the enemies, and that the serpent could not steal through them without being seen? Then did he not lose his path to blind the eyes of the Hurons? Did he not pretend to go back to his tribe who had treated him ill, and driven him from their wigwams like a dog? And when he saw what he wished to do, did we not aid him by making a false face, that the Hurons might think the white man believed that his friend was his enemy? Is not all this true? And when Le Subtil had shut the eyes and stopped the ears of his nation by his wisdom, did they not forget that they had once done him wrong, and forced him to flee to the Mohawks? And did they not leave him on the south of the river with their prisoners, while they have gone foolishly to the north? Does not Renard mean to turn like a fox on his footsteps, and carry to the rich and grey-headed Scotchman his daughters? Yes, Maqua, I see it all, and I have already been thinking how so much wisdom and honesty should be repaid. First, the chief of William Henry will give as great chief should for such a service. The metal of Maqua will no longer be of tin. Footnote. It has long been a practice of the whites to conciliate the important men of the Indians by presenting medals, which were worn in the place of their own rude ornaments. Those given by the English generally bear the impression of the reigning king, and those given by the Americans that of the president. End footnote. But of beaten gold. His horn will run over with powder. Dollars will be as plenty in his pouch as pebbles on the shore of Horican, and the deer will lick his hand, for they will know it to be vain to fly from the rifle he will carry. As for myself, I know not how to exceed the gratitude of the Scotchman, but I Yes, I will. What will the young chief who comes from toward the sun give? demanded the Huron, observing that Hayward hesitated in his desire to end the enumeration of benefits with that which might form the climax of an Indian's wishes. He will make the fire-water from the islands in the salt lake flow before the wigwam of Maqua, until the heart of the Indian shall be lighter than the feathers of the hummingbird, and his breath sweeter than wild honeysuckle. Le Renard had listened gravely as Hayward slowly proceeded in this subtle speech. When the young man mentioned the artifice, he supposed the Indian to have practiced on his own nation. The countenance of the listener was veiled in an expression of cautious gravity. At the allusion to the injury which Duncan affected to believe had driven the Huron from his native tribe, a gleam of such ungovernable ferocity flashed from the other's eyes, as induced the adventurous speaker to believe he had struck the proper chord, and by the time he reached the part where he so artfully blended the thirst of vengeance with the desire of gain, he had at least obtained a command of the deepest attention of the savage. 
the question put by Le Renard had been calm, and with all the dignity of an Indian. But it was quite apparent by the thoughtful expression of the listener's countenance that the answer was most cunningly devised. The Huron mused a few moments, and then laying his hand on the rude bandages of his wounded shoulder, he said, with some energy, Do friends make such marks? Would La Longue Carbine cut one so slight on an enemy? Do the Delawares crawl upon those they love like snakes, twisting themselves to strike? Would Le Gros Serpent have been heard by the ears of one he wished to be deaf? Does the white chief burn his powder in the faces of his brothers? Does he ever miss his aim, when seriously bent to kill? Returned Duncan, smiling with well-acted sincerity. Another long and deliberate pause succeeded these sententious questions and ready replies. Duncan saw that the Indian hesitated. In order to complete his victory, he was in the act of recommencing the enumeration of the rewards, when Maqua made an expressive gesture and said, Enough! Le Renard is a wise chief, and what he does will be seen. Go and keep the mouth shut. When Maqua speaks, it will be the time to answer. Hayward, perceiving that the eyes of his companion were warily fastened on the rest of the band, fell back immediately in order to avoid the appearance of any suspicious confederacy with their leader. Maqua approached the horses, and affected to be well pleased with the diligence and ingenuity of his comrades. He then signed to Hayward to assist the sisters into the saddles, for he seldom deigned to use the English tongue, unless urged by some motive of more than usual moment. There was no longer any plausible pretext for delay and Duncan was obliged, however reluctantly, to comply. As he performed this office, he whispered his reviving hopes in the ears of the trembling females, who through dread of encountering the savage countenances of their captors, seldom raised their eyes from the ground. The mare of David had been taken with the followers of the large chief. In consequence, its owner, as well as Duncan, was compelled to journey on foot. The latter did not, however, so much regret this circumstance as it might enable him to retard the speed of the party, for he still turned his longing looks in the direction of Fort Edward, in the vain expectation of catching some sound from that quarter of the forest which might denote the approach of succor. When all were prepared, Maqua made the signal to proceed, advancing in front to lead the party in person. Next followed David, who was gradually coming to a true sense of his condition, as the effects of the wound became less and less apparent. The sisters rode in his rear, with Hayward at their side, while the Indians flanked the party and brought up the close of the march, with a caution that seemed never to tire. In this manner they proceeded in uninterrupted silence except when Hayward expressed some solitary word of comfort to the females, or David gave vent to the moanings of his spirit in piteous exclamations, which he intended should express the humility of resignation. Their direction lay toward the south, 
and in a course nearly opposite to the road to William Henry. Notwithstanding this apparent adherence in Maqua to the original determination of his conquerors, Hayward could not believe his tempting bait was so soon forgotten, and he knew the windings of an Indian's path too well to suppose that its apparent course led directly to its object, when artifice was at all necessary. Mile after mile was, however, passed through the boundless woods, in this painful manner, without any prospect of a termination of their journey. Hayward watched the sun as he darted his meridian rays through the branches of the trees, and pined for the moment when the policy of Maqua should change their route to one more favorable to his hopes. Sometimes he fancied the weary savage, despairing of passing the army of Montcalm in safety, was holding his way toward a well-known border settlement, where a distinguished officer of the crown, and a favored friend of the Six Nations, held his large possessions as well as his usual residence. To be delivered into the hands of Sir William Johnson was far preferable to being led into the wilds of Canada, but in order to effect even the former it would be necessary to traverse the forest for many weary leagues, each step of which was carrying him further from the scene of the war, and consequently from the post not only of honor, but of duty. Cora alone remembered the parting injunctions of the scout, and whenever an opportunity offered, she stretched forth her arm to bend aside the twigs that met her hands. But the vigilance of the Indians rendered this act of precaution both difficult and dangerous. She was often defeated in her purpose by encountering their watchful eyes, when it became necessary to feign an alarm she did not feel, and occupy the limb by some gesture of feminine apprehension. Once, and once only, was she completely successful when she broke down the bow of a large sumac, and by a sudden thought let her glove fall at the same instant. This sign, intended for those that might follow, was observed by one of her conductors, who restored the glove, broke the remaining branches of the bush in such a manner that it appeared to proceed from the struggling of some beast in its branches, and then laid his hand on his tomahawk, with a look so significant that it put an effectual end to those stolen memorials of their passage. As there were horses to leave the prints of their footsteps in both bands of the Indians, this interruption cut off any probable hopes of assistance being conveyed through the means of their trail. Hayward would have ventured a remonstrance had there been anything encouraging in the gloomy reserve of Maqua. But the savage, during all this time, seldom turned to look at his fellows, and never spoke. With the sun for his only guide, or aided by such blind marks as are only known to the sagacity of a native, he held his way along the barrens of pine, through occasional little fertile vales, across brooks and rivulets, and over undulating hills, with the accuracy of instinct, and nearly with the directness of a bird. He never seemed to hesitate. Whether the path was hardly distinguishable, whether it disappeared, or whether it lay beaten and plain before him made no sensible difference in his speed or certainty. 
it seemed as if fatigue could not affect him. Whenever the eyes of the wearied travelers rose from the decayed leaves over which they trod, his dark form was to be seen glancing among the stems of the trees in front, his head immovably fastened in a forward position, with the light plume on his crest fluttering in a current of air made solely by the swiftness of his own motion. But all his diligence and speed were not without an object. After crossing a low vale, through which a gushing brook meandered, he suddenly ascended a hill so steep and difficult of ascent that the sisters were compelled to alight in order to follow. When the summit was gained, they found themselves on a level spot, but thinly covered with trees, under one of which Mokwa had thrown his dark form, as if willing and ready to seek that rest, which was so much needed by the whole party. End of Chapter 10 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania in the summer of 2007.